Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion Podcast, addressing how primary care providers can use reimbursement as a pathway for quality dementia care. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to Genenta, Lilly, Otska, and Avenir for their support of the GSA Care Toolkit for Brain Health and today's program. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, or GSA, and I'm delighted to serve as the host for today's Momentum discussion. Please join me in welcoming today's discussants, Dr. Carolyn K. Clevenger, a professor at the Nell Hogston Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University and the clinical director and a practicing nurse practitioner at the Emory Integrated Memory Care Clinic, a nurse-led primary care practice for people living with dementia. Dr. Clevenger is joined by her colleague, Laura Metters, a licensed clinical social worker and the administrative director of the Emory Integrated Memory Care Clinic. Dr. Clevenger and Laura, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to share your insights around how providers can achieve appropriate reimbursement for quality dementia care and how they can, in fact, use the reimbursement as a pathway for this care. I know. Thank you so much for having us. Great. Well, let's dive right in. We have a lot to talk about today. And Dr. Clevenger, let me start with you. In our Care Toolkit for Brain Health, we share information about how providers can be reimbursed for detection, evaluation, and diagnosis of dementia, as well as for care planning and ongoing care of individuals with cognitive impairment and dementia. Particularly for the care planning and ongoing care of these individuals, how can primary care and teams ensure diversity in billing that appropriately reflects the care and services uh, provided by the whole team? not just the primary care provider. Well, what a great way to start today, because first of all, let me say, I think the ability to do a diverse range of billing types and visit types to provide all of the services that people living with dementia need is best suited in primary care. We certainly need our specialists on board for their specialized knowledge and skills and some of the, and and certainly the components that they add, but people have a relationship with primary care and ideally, with the primary care team. So I think we get overwhelmed in primary care because so many things fall to us though. And when you start talking about all of the things in like quality measures or practice guidelines in dementia, it sounds really overwhelming. And so I found it helpful to sort of break things up a bit. So for example, the classic thing in primary care is that someone is even... Your, you know, your hand on the doorknob kind of story where you're getting ready to finish the visit. And this person says, and oh, by the way, I'm concerned about my memory or thinking, or you have a typical visit where you're trying to hit all of your other quality metrics, you know, trying to make sure their blood pressure is at guideline and we're having our diabetic teaching. And, you know, maybe you get a note from the medical assistant or from, uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a local receptionist or scheduler from someone in their life, an adult child or a spouse that says, hey, while they're there, can you talk to them about this? So it can feel like a lot. And so first of all, in those types of ongoing visits, you can do your other care as well, right? So, you know, your blood pressure does make a difference in cognitive symptoms and managing the thyroid also makes your cognitive symptoms better. Those can be related for one thing. And you might consider what it looks like to have a type of visit for someone with multiple chronic conditions, including dementia. For us, and what I recommend often for practices is that when you do have that maybe end of visit conversation, or maybe you've introduced a conversation about memory or thinking or behavior changes, that 
you actually do take the time to say, why don't we have a separate visit where we do a deep dive into this? Don't try to do it all in one visit. So first of all, if you do try to do it all in one visit, by the way, billing on time has been a really helpful addition and change in our codes recently because you can do those extended visits and bill on the basis of time, regardless of complexity or how much you're sort of capturing. Uh, Different visit types have also come out, right, in our CPT catalog. So I think the most obvious is the cognitive assessment and care planning visit. Cognitive assessment and care planning visit, if you've seen in the care toolkit and also available by the Alzheimer's Association, is the full list of all of the elements that go into that visit. I think that can feel really overwhelming. There are ways to streamline much of that so that you are using an informant potentially or a care partner who can give that information in advance. We'll talk about that in a little bit um, in terms of our workflows that you may have other folks on your staff who can gather some of that information so that we're maximizing the time of the primary care provider. But that uh, cognitive assessment and care planning visit then does result in a care plan. So it it is higher reimbursement for a reason. I think uh, CMS is clear that it does take longer to do all of these elements, but it's important. If you um, just consider, and I'm making an assumption here, no one at CMS told me this, I assume higher reimbursement is to motivate practices to do more uptake of things that matter to Medicare beneficiaries or to our patients. So taking the time to set up that cognitive assessment visit can be really helpful. Now, again, a lot of elements are included there, lots of information. Sometimes it's helpful and some of the measures that we want to know are actually validated by an observer, not from patient report. So your patient report is very important. But we've also found, and you may have also seen this in your practice, if you're listening, that there's someone else in this person's life who is really anxious to tell you all of the things and changes they're observing that the person who's experiencing may or may not even realize are happening. So we use the prolonged non-face-to-face visit, which is we can consider a supplemental visit in advance of the cognitive assessment visit sometimes. This goes really well if you just expect that you'll need additional time in any case. It goes especially well when that person in their life, um, and again, typically adult child or spouse, but could be someone else, wants to tell you things that the person who's having those symptoms may find embarrassing or it may create discord in their own relationship. So if you're thinking about the visit where you're asking this person about sleep or about basic activities of daily living. And they're telling you things like, yes, I drove to work. And you, the classic, you know, person, again, adult child spouse is sitting there behind them, strategically placing themselves behind the person so they can shake their head. No, that's not happening. Or um, making different gestures with you non-verbally. Or if they're more assertive, they're just sort of interrupting the person while they're trying to tell their experience. Their experience matters. So you can use that prolonged non-face-to-face time as a separate call. It should be at least 20 minutes. We typically schedule 30 minutes for those. And it's by phone so that the person can tell you what they're observing, their language, things that we don't say. There are some people who you never say the A word, meaning Alzheimer's. You never say the D word, meaning dementia. And there are some families that are very open and we talk about um, these things very openly. So it's helpful to the provider to know that so your visit goes better. Um, and then there are other things ongoing. So once that care plan is created and they've got you've gotten their consent as their primary care, we all know we're doing a lot of coordination of care outside of that visit. 
So the visit is intense, but lots of other things happen. Maybe there are community services where they're engaging or we're recommending, or we need um, medication management, or maybe a, a bit of sort of support and coaching of their care partner. And often that's done by other folks on the staff. In my case, I'm very fortunate to have registered nurses and social workers and others who may take those calls. We use the um, chronic care management codes, which is an entire catalog of codes at this point, complex, principal, chronic. And so being able to capture that time with other folks has been very helpful. And a lot of things happen between the visits that are really critical, especially if you want to do things like, you know, keep this person out of the hospital unnecessarily, which we really do. Uh, And then finally, both maybe for the patient, but also for that care partner, having the opportunity to do one-on-one coaching or actual psychotherapy has been invaluable to us. It is one of my best and most effective interventions is to empower and train up that caregiver to do their role. They're doing a whole job that's very intense. They, of course, they didn't go to school for this. And many times they didn't sign up for this. And so they find themselves in that role. And in our case, again, very fortunate to have our clinical social workers who are able to provide that level of skilled support and they're billing for that time as well. So there are sort of this catalog of things that we're doing ongoing. I find we have a lot of touch points with these families. And if you're doing dementia care well, you're going to find that you're having a lot of touch points with folks if you're going to avoid crisis. And a hospitalization that's unnecessary certainly falls under that category for us. There are, of course, other types of crises in their lives. But you're going to have all of these touch points. You certainly want to get reimbursed and paid for the work that you're doing when you're doing such amazing work and support for these families. Very great. Lots of information and such diversity and in a team approach, um, we, we talk about the not only is team-based care possible, it's really necessary for folks to succeed in primary care practice with dementia. And so let's take the opportunity to hear from Laura. Dr. Clevenger has described Laura as one of the gurus of, of uh, CCM and capturing that. And so, Laura, I'd love to hear a little bit from you about how you're ensuring well-coordinated quality dementia care and how you all spend so much time really outside of that standard visit. And can you share some kind of concrete examples of that time that's spent outside of the visit, that standard primary care visit that we all think of as being scheduled and short and and, um, maybe a bit more structured, and really how that care outside that, that Dr. Clevenger alluded to can be a path to appropriate reimbursement. Yeah, I think Carolyn did a great job of outlining the ways in which we utilize sort of time spent outside of an encounter. We do utilize those prolonged non-face-to-face visits quite frequently. We use them ahead of new patient visits to sort of get the story so caregivers can speak candidly. But providers have also utilized them for gathering information outside of the initial visit. So they've made some medication changes. They need to see how the patient is responding to those changes. And so they'll schedule a visit 30 minutes later to speak with, or, you know, two weeks later for that 30-minute phone call to say, um, how is this change going? Have you noticed changes with behavior? Um, so that, again, the caregiver can speak candidly. I think that is really important to have that time structured and allotted so that we can follow up and make sure that we're closing loops on some of these care goals for our patients and families who are really overwhelmed. We utilize chronic care management all of the time in our practice to help coordinate care and get reimbursed for the time that all of our clinical team is spending to help patients and families get through this disease process. So this is the time spent 
where the assisted living has called us to report, you know, your person has had a fall or your person, this, your patient is acting more confused than they normally are. Maybe they have a UTI. And so it's this time spent triaging these concerns that the facility or the family may have about their patient and then implementing a plan outside of that face-to-face visit um, to coordinate care on behalf of the patient. If we can avoid our patients living with dementia coming into the visit and disrupting their day as much as possible, we really want to make this easier for the care partners and our patients. And so we utilize that chronic care management time to be reimbursed for the time we're spent, we're spending outside of a visit, but also to make it easier for our patients and families to do what they need to do at home and to be as least disruptive as possible to their day. Terrific. Such a patient-centered, person-centered approach, uh, recognizing how you guys can care for them without them needing to, to come in for that evaluation and really get to know them. And it's great, great, great work you guys are doing. So I've heard from you both a bit about capturing the reimbursement for quality dementia care that it is possible. Um, And I would imagine that many of our listeners are kind of wondering the same thing that I am is, how can primary care make this happen? In other words, what do you need for the infrastructure to make it happen? Dr. Clevenger, let's start with you with that question. Yeah, that's a great question because I think we spend a lot of time training individuals in particular, primary care providers have done a lot of training in recent years about how to provide better and more supportive dementia care. I think that's a wonderful thing, but it can also lead to a lot of frustration if they find themselves in a structure that doesn't support doing the work that they know after their training needs to happen. So in quality work, we start with structure and then we put our process in place, right? So There are some really basic things I think that we can consider in a typical primary care practice for this. So for example, I've talked about a couple of things that are going to take additional time. So if you consider dementia as a chronic condition, and um, in some ways it it certainly is a chronic condition, it's also not your typical chronic condition because it impairs cognition. So there are some caveats to that, but let's just go along that pathway. I know there are practices that do um, have expandable slots. So perhaps your typical slot is a 20 minute, but you know, if people meet particular criteria, then your front office staff or your scheduling staff are empowered, or there's a process for them to do expandable slots so that you can have that longer visit, uh, in particular, if there are visit types. So we've we've done a fair amount of work on certain visit types that then automate that process for our schedulers. So they know if we've asked for a particular visit type, it gets a longer time. So even just having that expandable slot can be terrifically helpful to the team. Structure for us also begins with how you staff the model. And I think in healthcare, right, we've all got to figure out, you know, when you're staffing, you're considering what is the revenue that you need to generate to cover those additional positions. And I think that's also why we think about all of our staff members being included in the billing work and generating revenue for the time that they're spending. But we have been able to consider our population of interest. So we're a patient-centered medical home. I know lots of primary care practices also carry that type of designation. And even if you don't, this encouragement to consider your patients as a, um, a population, right? So we're looking at the population health of our practice. So knowing our population, the average age, and various other characteristics about them, we staffed accordingly. So this is a nurse-led practice. It's a nurse practitioner-driven model of care. So that's who does 
all of the in-person or telehealth, but you know, the encounters with patients. And we include part of a psychiatric, a geriatric psychiatry nurse practitioner on the team as well. So some of that is having a bit of her time. Even in our practice, that's not a full-time position. That's a almost like a consultant who is in as part of the practice. Again, if you're in a primary care practice where you're having integrated behavioral health, this is probably not new or novel, but something you might consider, right? Because you understand that the needs of this population are going to include geriatric psychiatry, certainly. Um, for us, again, we've staffed with clinical social workers. You've already heard how critical that has been for us from day one, having an LCSW as part of the team, in particular for the caregiver support to, to coordinate care for the patient as well. But they really have been our care partner point of contact uh, the entire time we've existed. And if you think about, sometimes when we talk about our practice, people will say, oh, you all really exist for the care partner. We exist for both. And in dementia care, you really need to exist and serve both if you're looking for these positive outcomes, right? Improve quality of life and avoiding crisis. And then we, of course, staff with registered nurses. I know that's always a decision point that you're considering in primary care. What is the level of nursing support staff? That has been appropriate for us because the level of complexity of the clinical triage that is needed. And those registered nurses also do conduct visits, including annual wellness visits. And they do a good bit of our outreach in terms of preventive care and closing care gaps. So, and then we've got, of course, our own local what we would call a, a patient care coordinator. Other practices might think about like a scheduler, front desk kind of person who is in tune to the model and the needs of this population. So that's been really helpful to empower them and to give them some foundational knowledge about cognitive impairment and dementia. So I know we think that all these people are not clinical, but in fact, you know, this is the person who might get the call or maybe they're calling for appointment reminders and we're still sort of calling the patient who may have some cognitive impairment and they say, I don't need that cognitive assessment visit, but it's our scheduler who knows to call the daughter to say, hey, your mom canceled her visit tomorrow. Did you want that? And they say, oh no, I still want that visit, right? So I think include everyone on your staff in terms of who's sort of tuned in and that gets us to then standard processes. So however you're staffed, however you're structured, having a clear process of how we do intake for these patients, for any of our patients and our standard flow. So we know for new patient visits, as Laura mentioned, that's that's multiple visits. That's a prolonged non-face-to-face just with the care partner or informant. And it's also the cognitive assessment visit, right? We scheduled two at once. And so we're really clear who does that scheduling, who answers those questions, who meets with this person first, second, third, uh, in terms of uh, documenting our care plan, the same thing. And so we've got some, you know, and they're not complex, some basic process map so that we all kind of know where this process begins, which role on the interprofessional team plays a part, and what goes before what. So we would call this standard work. If you're a lean organization, we would just call those standard processes that we use. The team having communication with each other about patients, right? We know this needs to happen. As a leader of the practice, I think it's my, my responsibility to create structure for that to happen. So in our model, we have a morning huddle every day. It's 10 minutes. It's structured. We've been doing this since we opened seven years ago. That creates a space to know if there are like things on fire that someone needs to address. And we know that someone's calling for follow-up or someone's coming in today and we should know about this. Again, if you're a PCMH, that may be something you're already doing. If you're not, I just can't tell you how powerful it has been for both just patient care, but also the teamness that we experience with each other and collaboration and getting through the day. It's about today's work in terms of the team communication. That's different than things like staff meetings or case conference. And then finally, I would say having note templates. So doing things like a cognitive assessment and care planning visit, 
doing those prolonged non-face-to-face encounters, having a template for documenting that. And that includes um, templates for things like a lot of us are using electronic medical records. We're in Epic, so there's a pre-visit check-in. Some of those tools should get pushed out according to your visit type so that you're capturing that information. And we're all doing that pretty much the same, using the same tools if we're using like a functional assessment, for example, or a neuropsych inventory. But then during the visit that our um, note templates are quite standardized and similar, it keeps you as the clinician on the correct path, meaning you're going to check all of the elements that you need for your billing and compliance people. That makes them really happy. If you as the practice leader are interested in your outcomes or you want to spot check processes, then having the same note template goes a long way because you're pulling out data as it's gone in. And then you actually can provide feedback and ongoing continuous quality improvement for the team. So those are some of the things I would recommend, I think, for any practice to put into place. Any one of those will you, I think, would see some improvements in the care of people with dementia. If you can do all of them, well, you know, all the better. Well, Laura, I'm going to turn to you now with this next question. Dr. Clevenger alluded to documentation. And so I'd really like to hear from you about documentation that's needed to support billing for quality dementia care, particularly with that complex case management that you mentioned and the time spent with the care partners and really time outside of those standard visits and visits by the, by the PCP themselves. Sure. I think um, chronic care management requirements have changed over the past seven years. So I will do my best to recap sort of where we are in that process. And there is quite a bit of documentation, but once you have the process down, it is not cumbersome to be able to bill it. The first thing that is required is that the patient or the care partner consents to be enrolled in chronic care management or to be billed for chronic care management. So this typically happens at that initial visit with the nurse practitioner in our clinic where they are talking about CCM um, and getting their consent um, and documenting that in the medical record. The next piece that is required before you can bill CCM in a month is um, you need a care plan, a written care plan that has been shared with the patient and the family in some way and is included in the medical record so that other care team members, other specialists within the healthcare system may be able to see that and sometimes even outside of the system. But everybody can see this care plan that is comprehensive and person-centered where it talks about the patient's goals, what are the instructions from the provider about how to meet those patient-centered goals, what's on the problem list, What are the barriers to meeting these goals? What community support may be necessary? Are there financial limitations to achieving some of these goals? And who are the players that are involved in this person's care? So this is something that you may be collecting in your medical record. And so it's a matter of how do we capture this information in one centralized place so that it's easy to find for the team and easy to know sort of what the plan is for this individual After the care plan is complete and sent to patients, um, there's a couple of other things that is required to build CCM. You have to have 24-7 access to the medical team. So for us, we have an after-hours number on nights and weekends that our patients can call if they have clinical concerns. The after-hours number is really important to us. We think it is critical for keeping our patients out of the hospital unnecessarily, um, where caregivers can call and say, this is new this is different. Do I need to go to the hospital? Can I wait until Monday morning for triage? And so our providers help them walk through that. Um, It is always somebody on our team that is answering 
the calls for these patients and families. So they're, they've often heard, if it's not their patient, they've often heard about these patients in the morning huddles that Carolyn talked about. Um, so they're really able to give patient-specific advice um, in this after-hours line. You have to be able to document the medical care that you're providing in an electronic medical record. So for many people, it needs to be shareable and documented. And then the key piece is being able to document the time spent within a calendar month, coordinating the care on behalf of these patients. So what happened? Um, what care were you coordinating? What goals were you working towards? It's typically contact initiated. So this is not time spent doing chart review. This is not time spent sort of managing population health needs to sort of say, you know, how are we doing on our immunization rates? This is really, there is a concern, again, is that assisted living who is calling and saying there's been a fall, there's been a change, there's a caregiver who is calling and saying, I've never seen this before, I don't know what to do, how do I get through the next 24 hours? It may be that we are reaching out to say, hey, we noticed this, we saw you went to this specialist, we're very concerned, here's what we think is the plan moving forward. So it is any sort of contact initiated time that is spent between you and somebody on that patient's care team. So it doesn't necessarily have to be calling the patient or calling the patient's care partner to discuss the things, but maybe it's the time spent with the assisted living or the time spent talking to the pharmacy to make sure that the patient's getting the medications that they need. So you need to document what you did and you need to document how long you did it and by whom, right? So that provider of the service also matters. The enrolling provider, so in our case, it's the nurse practitioner, is going to be the person who is dropping the charge. But for chronic care management, it is often including the time spent by the clinical team. So that includes our registered nurses, our social workers, and when we are fully staffed, our LPNs in order to coordinate care on behalf of our patients. I will, will comment that we heard from Dr. Clevenger at our recent annual scientific meeting, and when she discussed you all's work with capturing the CCM, there was a bit of a gasp in the room, I think, of people who, who uh, didn't really quite know how that, that is not only possible, but essential. So Dr. Clevenger, what would you like to add to what Laura shared about documentation? In particular, I'm interested in how are you successful with capturing those particularly high-level visits with your patients? So I think the thing that certainly our providers also do that minute capture when we're doing the CCM time, but probably the most often time-based or non-traditional type that we are doing is this, are those prolonged non-face-to-face encounters because so many things do come up there. And so for, for clinicians who are used to those, that particular code in the past, it was, it was used only for chart review. You can still use that for chart review as part of intake. If you're looking at like specialist notes and those sorts of things like neuropsych testing, but you can also use it for discussion about the patient when the patient is not present, right? So this is gathering information. It's information into you from someone else. And just as a reminder, also people get nervous about the HIPAA concerns there. So just to remind people, you are gathering information about the patient. You are not sending information out about the patient. So this is not something that would fall under patient privacy because you are not actually sharing information. You're gathering it. So I still strongly encourage people to do that. So as a clinician, as you're doing that billable time, you do need to document the visit start time, the visit end time, and the content of what you discussed. It probably is our most free text type of documentation for our practice. Although many of us, because we're just you know classically trained, right, we're going to talk about what kind of information we got in, 
what additional types of assessments we may have asked about, and then the overall, like what is the problem or the diagnosis that we're addressing and what is the plan? And then uh, the other component to that is that it relates to either an upcoming visit or it relates to a previous visit that was an actual encounter. So that so it, it relates to a face-to-face encounter and this is the non-face-to-face. So that's important to remember for that documentation for those clinicians. Now, the other thing that I didn't mention earlier is that sometimes you do have these very high-level, complex, and intricate conversations, in particular around that diagnostic disclosure for someone who's newly diagnosed even in our practice where someone has come in post-diagnosis and, but maybe that's a fresh diagnosis. And so early in those encounters, our conversations are really, what is your understanding of the diagnosis that you were given? And so that's very helpful to understand where they are. And then it really starts to begin the conversation about goal setting and what we plan for These individuals, by and large, are following a fairly well-known disease trajectory, whether it's Alzheimer's or Lewy body or vascular or frontotemporal. And so I'm very well-versed in that trajectory. I'm going to start to talk to um, the person as much as they're able to engage in the conversation, depending on their stage, and their care partner about what to expect over the next six months. That is advanced care planning. So I know we think about advanced care planning as we're completing a, you know, a formal advanced directive or a pulse, you know, the life-sustaining treatment forms in, in our state, that's what they're called. And that can be part of that. But many times it is also, these are the concerns. I'm concerned that this at this stage, people tend to have more balance issues and falls. At this stage, people tend to need additional care. Are you a family who are most wanting care in the home or would you be looking to go out of the home? This is the stage where adult day is really supportive and may delay institutional placement and provide respite, right? So these are the things that we're talking, these are big milestones. This is the stage where driving cessation might happen. And so, you know, I think we think about advanced care planning as only end of life care, but there are multiple milestones along this journey. And that is certainly advanced care planning. And you can obviously include those as part of your visit as well and, and be reimbursed for that very valuable and meaningful type of encounter and certainly high level conversation you're having. Well, we titled this program noting that appropriate billing can serve as a pathway for quality dementia care. So how does that, in fact, tell me how that serves as that, as such a pathway. Dr. Clevenger, let's start with you. Can you look at the dementia quality measures that have been published for some time now, right? These are things like someone with a dementia diagnosis should have a regularly completed assessment of their symptoms, their cognitive, their behavioral, their functional symptoms. Their caregiver should be assessed for their own burden and strain. There should be a conversation around safety concerns. Um, so there, there are all of these elements. In primary care, you know, the concern is, and just in general medical care, we think that all of this care falls to the provider, the nurse practitioner, the physician assistant, the physician. When in fact, you really cannot accomplish this, certainly not in an ongoing, fa- in an ongoing fashion uh, and in a sustainable way without the entire team being part of this. And you want this patient and the care partner to not just see you, the provider, as the only source of information. So you want them to know that there are other people on the team who may be the best suited to answer their questions and concerns. Sometimes I get into conversations where really it's our social worker who's going to be the best person to do a deeper dive. I know about like two layers of depth, right? And they have 10. So 
um, you know, you want them to know. And the other thing is in practices, in lots of office practices, when we think about our billable providers as, you know, these are the people who need to be like in patient encounters, you know, generating revenue for their time and everyone else is in a supporting role. When in fact, everyone plays a role and right, high functioning teams do this thing called situational leadership. The person who is best suited to lead in that particular circumstance takes the lead. That's high functioning. That's what we aspire to be. Now, I do have this nursing lens, right? And so that's my background. I'm a nurse practitioner. Um, I've, all of my education, all of my degrees are nursing degrees. Unlike the newer folks who are coming out with all of these much more broad uh, based um, <laughs> educational backgrounds, but here I am. And I have been told for a long time, and I have observed, in particular in the hospital, the work of nursing is invisible. I think social work probably has a similar experience many times. And because what is visible work is what goes on the billing sheet. And so many times the work of nurses, the work of social work makes a huge contribution in, in avoiding hospitalization in optimizing quality of life, in better controlling people's chronic conditions, whether it's cognitive or otherwise. And if it's not a bill that's attached to that person, it's like it never happened. Everything goes under the billing provider. And honestly, in our private insurance plans, we're still looking at much of the circumstance like that. So it has been important to us to not only engage the team, to use every person on the, on the clinical staff at their top of license kind of clinical activities, but also when we can to identify who's doing the work. So Laura mentioned the person who's doing the work of CCM is captured. And so that we can credit that person, we can actually begin to measure their contribution in a quantifiable way, not only to the bottom line of the practice, but also to the outcomes of the patients and caregivers that we get. So it's been really important to us and we've and so these newer codes, like CCM is relatively new. Uptake is not huge. Cognitive assessment visits are relatively new. It's been important to us to take advantage of those because these patients get more of the care that they need. And it has allowed us to have our clinical staff really step in and lead when appropriate and also recognize the work that they're doing in a more formal way. Laura, is there any, uh, anything you'd like to add to what Dr. Clevenger shared? Yeah, I think social workers in particular, I roll my eyes when they say nursing is invisible work because I feel as the social workers, it, they really are sort of the first service line that a lot of healthcare entities say this can go um, because there are not as many traditional pathways for reimbursement. And so I think it really is being intentional about how are we capturing this time? Are we allowing the people on our team to practice at the top of their license so that we can get reimbursed for as much time spent as possible. And so really utilizing those registered nurses to do the annual wellness visit instead of a physician or a nurse practitioner, allowing the clinical social worker to bill for family psychotherapy or individual therapy when possible, and then also capturing other supportive services that they're providing for chronic care management services, I think is really critical to providing high quality dementia care. And Laura, I'll ask you this one last question before we wrap up. And that is that you guys have already mentioned how much this stuff has changed in just seven years since you've been in, in your practice. We certainly add new resources to our care toolkit as they become available, including around reimbursement. 
but how do you guys do it? How do you stay up to date with all of these changes? And, and so Laura, let's start with you. Carolyn and I have really relied heavily on our professional organizations to help us in this. So part learning from GSA, learning from the American Geriatric Society, the Alzheimer's Association, really being able to rely on their support. We've heard about this. How do we do it? Um, it's been really instrumental in our success in implementing this locally within our clinic. We've also developed a strong working relationship with our billing partners internally and our coding specialists so that, you know, we've heard about this new code. How do we do it? Um, and so really partnering with your internal resources to be able to move some of this forward is really critical to make sure that those charges are being dropped. There's no surprises. We are getting reimbursed for the time spent providing this high quality care. Great. Well, this has been a terrific discussion and I want to just highlight a couple of things I heard. One is innovation and really thinking about what is the best thing for our patient and how can we develop pathways of care and ensure that your practices and infrastructure really supports guideline-based dementia care to ensure the best quality outcomes for your patients and their care partners. I also heard about the alignment of guidelines for care, reimbursement, and quality metrics, and really looking at how those align for those better outcomes. And I love the idea of keeping the team from doing invisible work. I also did get a strong message of team communication and how reassuring for a patient or, or family partner who's teetering on the edge of a crisis, who calls in the middle of the night, and even though it's not their provider on the phone, they can say, I talked to Dr. Clevenger, I talked to Laura this morning, and she let me know what you guys are facing. How reassuring that that team communication is available for your patients and their care providers. So those are a couple of real key points that I heard, but I'd love to uh, start with you, Laura, in just a, a few minutes here. You know, let's wrap up some key things that you want to leave our audience with. I think high quality dementia care is not accidental. It is something that the practice has to be intentional about and figuring out there's lots of different ways to do this, but how is it going to work for your individual team? And what is the structure you need to put in place around it so that you can ensure that this is happening? The other piece for us that's been really important is measuring how well we're doing at some of these outcomes. So we think it's really important that our patients are getting a cognitive assessment and an annual wellness visit. So we've been starting to track how well we are doing at meeting those goals. Dr. Clevenger, how about you? What are some key points you wanna leave our our audience with? So I just wanna um, reiterate how you said how well guidelines and billing and reimbursement and quality measures have aligned. And so for our clinicians and our practice leaders who hear this and think it's so much to keep up with, it's so much to do, really, if you're paying attention, and and, and Laura said it perfectly, it's been our professional organization that has helped so much with this. And sometimes if you're thinking, well, there's that noon webinar, I don't know if I have time. If you pay attention, 
these things do line up very well. So you've heard patient-centered medical home, a lot of those elements set us up very nicely to look at population of interest. In our case, that's only people living with dementia. And then it let us build a structure, as Laura said, and figure out what matters most in terms of measurement. So all of these things do line up very nicely. It's not like you have to keep up with each thing separately, but when you're paying attention, you start to see where momentum is in terms of offering better and more comprehensive dementia care from all angles, including reimbursement. Well, I want to thank you both, Laura and Dr. Clevenger. You guys are just terrific. Your patients and families are so lucky to have you. Thanks so much for all the great work that you're doing. And thank you for sharing your insights with us at GSA and our our listeners. Thanks again. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.